0: An Investor's Investor.
1: Weird.
0: Always thinking.
1: Smart. Thoughtful. Unconventional. Hi, I'm John Lukomnik. Welcome to Outside In, the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals and anyone else who values different thinking. What does that mean? Well, we interview fascinating people from Shakespeare scholars to financial data scientists. To see what the financial community can learn from non-traditional sources and from traditional sources thinking in non-traditional ways we're breaking down the silos which too often surround the financial community come listen to the sounds of those walls collapsing today on outside in our special guest is david weber professor of law and paul m siskin scholar at boston university law school He specializes in issues of law at the intersection of organized labor, corporate law, and the capital markets. Looking at the law journals David publishes in is like looking at an all star lineup Harvard Business Law Review, the University of Chicago Business Law Review, and the University of Pennsylvania Journal of Law and Business. And that was just his published list for last year alone. David is perhaps best known for his book, The Rise of Working Class Shareholder Labor's Last Best Weapon. Which one audits everywhere from the New York Review of Books and the Financial Times to Dissent, Forbes, and the National Review? He has also just been elected to the board of directors of Yellow, the logistics company. David is an original and nuanced thinker, and I'm very happy he's our guest on Outside In today. Welcome, David.
0: John, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be with you.
1: So, what's your origin story? When you graduated this, you went to a traditional, Corporate law firm, you know, Midtown, defending large multinational corporations. And then you have flip sides briefly, becoming a plaintiff's attorney, suing those firms or uh-huh. those types of firms. At least. And now you're, I think it's fair to say, firmly ensconced as, as an academic who studies but also advocates for labor and working class interests. Were you always interested in those issues or was it something in your career that caused the focus? How did you become the person you are today? Well, I think it was a, a little bit of both, a
0: little bit of sort of you know how I grew up and also things have happened along the way in my career. I had come from a pretty uh public minded family. My dad founded like the ambulance corps in the town I grew up in, and you know was kind of involved with like local police and fire. My mother is uh is an academic herself, an epidemiologist actually uh not too far from you, John, up at uh, Albert Einstein College of Medicine in Monteuere Hospital, and she spent the last couple. Decades now working on the World Trade Center project, basically tracking the pulmonary health of all the 9/11 first responders and and firefighters and and my wife is a legal aid lawyer and a member of a union, so herself, the united auto workers union so that that is sort of a spirit of of things that I grew up with and then but you're right, I mean there were things that happened along the way in my career you when I went to, you know, classic sort of post-law school clerk for a judge, went to a big corporate law firm in New York. I had a lot of debt and like many American graduating law students, that was top of mind. I, I admit I was also interested to see like, you know, there's a sense that like corporate law firms in some sense have many of the secrets of our society. But lo and behold, you're right. After a bit, I remember... Sort of feeling a little bit like what you were just suggesting, like to some extent, I would rather have been suing my clients than representing them. And so the plaintiffs' side experience really was brief, but formative. And, and the reason for that is these were, you know, securities class actions brought by investors, big fraud cases, big deal cases. And what was very striking was that who were they, the firms, the funds that brought these cases, public pension funds, labor union funds, teachers. Firefighters, et cetera. I remember being in these settlement conferences with 20 something lawyers and accountants and bankers around the table. And then we we would have a teacher who represented the pension fund, a math teacher who understood what was going on. And to me, I was so striking to me the presence of, say, that math teacher in the room that this was really small d democratic finance. And I got excited about it because. You know, I grew up in a Manhattan suburb. There was a lot of Wall Street around. And, you know, the sense that like that markets are so powerful, they operate globally, that if, if there isn't some voice for workers, some voice for the middle class and working class in markets that, you know, you know, in a way, I don't want to say all hope is lost exactly, but so much is decided there. That I got very excited about, you know, the role that these funds, these worker funds were playing in that space. And that wound up becoming the card of my whole career.
1: So as you say, it's, it's, it's key to your career. And you've done a lot of scholarship around labor unions and labor issues generally. Mm-hmm. Your book, The Rise of the Working Class, Shareholder Labor's Best Weapon, focused on organized labor, not while labor, but as a participant in the capital markets. I think some people would be surprised at just how much of a capital market participant labor is. Tell us about your work, your thesis, and why it's important.
0: I define labor's capital, which is a term that gets thrown around in a bunch of different ways. But to me, what I think of as labor's capital is capital invested in the marketplace, basically in one of two forms, through labor union funds, which are private sector funds that invest the retirement savings of, of unionized workers. And public pension funds, the California Public Employees Retirement System, the New York City Pension Funds, which invest the in retirement savings of, of public sector workers. And you get pretty wide ranges of estimates, but as conservative as $5 trillion to as much as $10 trillion in assets in the marketplace are invested via these funds, about 10% of the US stock market. And estimates would say a third, even to half, of assets under management in the private equity space. The point is, it's a lot of money. And when you, uh, and it's not just that it's a lot of money, the idea of thinking about labor as a capital markets player is kind of an anathema. You know, there's like labor's supposed to be on one side of the chasm, capital on the other. But the reality is, is that they're very significant investors. And what got me really excited to want to write the book is that turns out there's a whole, group of unheralded activists out there who oversee capital strategies, departments and pension funds and union funds and elsewhere, who have been starting to figure out that they can use that shareholder power to advance their interests as investors and savers and also as workers. And I think that's what we need in the 21st century, given where capital markets are. So yes, that's kind of the thesis of the book is that, you know, that this is another way, another tool often an underutilized tool for labor and for workers to be using in trying to advance their interests in the 21st century.
1: Give us some examples. When you say they're activists and they, I assume you're saying they invest or act differently than other capital market participants. Give give us some examples so the listeners understand.
0: So New York City recently adopted, New York City's pension funds recently adopted a so-called responsible contractor policy. The responsible contractor policy basically says that when the city pension funds, which are in, I don't know, last I checked around $180 billion in assets, when they make real estate or infrastructure investments, they wanna make sure that that money is invested with contractors who are responsible, who pay fair wages and benefits to the workers on those job sites, who uh, don't have miserable uh, injury track records, for example. So New York City puts in a policy like this. Well, guess what happens? They end up want, uh, investing alongside Ulico, which is another U- the union labor life insurance company founded by Samuel Goppers, who also founded the American Federation of Labor, invest alongside a PE firm called Carlyle in rebuilding Terminal 1 at JFK Airport. That was 4,000 union jobs created, you know, in part because of policies like New York City's, um, that that's how they're going to they're gonna use their capital in that particular way. And there's just example of, after example of this, many of which I talk about in the book. These pension funds are the heart of, of bringing the most shareholder litigation for fraud cases. They have pushed back on private equity funds and hedge funds that take worker pension money and then turn around and use it against workers. They have pushed for uh, regulation, you know, whether it's uh, CEO to worker pay ratio, whether it's increased disclosure by private equity. The reality is, is that they systematically behave different than other market players.
1: You're the expert on fiduciary law. Let me ask you about a hot fiduciary topic today, which is the anti-ESG or anti-woke movement among some Republican lawmakers who think corporations are too, and I quote, woke and woke. Interestingly, they couch their arguments as if they're protecting the fiduciary obligation of loyalty, meaning you have to do what's right for the pension fund. Uh, the beneficiaries of the fund without regard to outside issues. Even as they say they're pushing rules to prop up the fossil fuel industry and protect jobs in their state. You're the expert and you've argued for this broader interpretation. The anti-ESGers to me seem to be taking that to an extreme and past the boundary arguing that beneficiaries be damned in effect. They only care about jobs Mm. and tax revenues. Mm. And they don't care about the duty of impartiality or intergenerational equity either because they want to favor the short-term or the long-term. Do you find this, I mean, I find it infuriated, but also ironic. Uh, Do you you agree? Yes and no.
0: Yes and no. I I would separate out two, two issues. Do I think this is a good idea from a policy perspective and from an investment perspective? And do I think it's a breach of fiduciary duty? And I would actually say yes to the first question and likely no to the second question. You know, it's interesting. I mean, people really, you know, when you talk to people, people talk about fiduciary duty all the time. But fiduciary duty is a particular legal concept nested in case law, nested in varying degrees of, you know, statutes and pension codes and 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 ERISA and so forth. And so a lot of times I find that that most people, especially non-lawyers, when they talk about fiduciary duty it really translates to them along the lines of something like doing the right thing, do the right thing. And that's fine, but it isn't, it doesn't quite right. So I, I, so I, you know, and I actually wrote something like this, uh, you know, in Barron's, I mean, the fact that Texas, you're quite right, has, and and states like that have said on the one hand, we're doing this to maximize returns, which nobody really believes. Then they also say, but we're also doing it to protect jobs in the state. I have to say, John, I don't in and of itself, have a problem with that argument. I think that if you're serious, as some states are about trying to protect, you know, well, let me back up one further half step. If you look at at pension funds and their funding, we always talk about returns as we should, but the economic reality is that pension funds have three sources of funding, returns and employer and employee contributions. One of the examples I used in my book and I've used before, and this comes from right in my home state of Massachusetts here, or my adopted state of Massachusetts, I should say, is where the maximized returns uh, point can almost become insane or, or economically uh, suicidal in some way. Uh, when I was writing the book, I interviewed this uh, custodian. His name was Rick Thorne. Rick worked at a public school not too far from where I live in Chelmsford, Massachusetts is where he was. And his pension fund got invested in Mass Prim, which is the big umbrella pension organization up here. And that organization turned around and made a big investment in Aramark, which is a company that provides public school services, among other things. Aramark then showed up in his town. The guy had been working at Chelmsford for over 20 years, making $22, $23 an hour. Aramark shows up in his town, underbids him his union for the school contract and offers him his own job back for $8.50 hour. Okay, This guy was literally invested out of his own job with his own retirement fund. And when you ask trustees, how could you do that? They say, oh, well, we were just looking at the, we can't even think about the workers who make who contributions into these pension plans. Well, in a way that's crazy. If you talk to most people who work in the pension world, They'll tell you when a pension fund goes down, it's almost never because of returns and bad investments. It's almost always because no new people are entering into the pension plan. That is when things really get dangerous. So back to the original question here, you know, it's funny because I don't obviously support and don't agree with what uh, these ALEC bills at all. In fact, I, I wrote a very thorough, I'd like to say thorough critique of those bills but not quite on the same grounds of fiduciary duty. Um, I don't have a problem with the fact that they want to say, hey, we need to be taking these jobs into account." I think actually what they've done, though, is create a a legal mess of a very different sort, which is they have, you know, uh, my co-authors, David Berger and Beth Young and I, we wrote this piece. What they've really done that I think is seriously problematic is they've set up this kind of irreconcilable clash between state law and federal law, such that they're telling their trustees, you better not take the environment into account. Don't even look at stuff that deals with that. I'm generalizing, of course, but... And then federal law has may have all sorts of disclosures in it related to exactly that thing. And so in many ways, I think what they have done, the real legal problem they've created is they've basically put their trustees in a situation where if they obey federal law, they could be violating state law. And if they obey state law, They could be violating federal law. That's the legal trap that I think has really been set here. That's more problematic than fiduciary duty all by itself, in my opinion.
1: Let's go back to your book for a second. It's hard to believe it's been five years since you published it. Let me ask you two questions. First, what was the reaction now that there's been some time? And second, were there any any surprises in that reaction? And second, if you had to do a second edition today, Mm -hmm. what would you change in it? It got the kind of attention that
0: I was hoping it would get. In fact, even more than I thought it would, it would get. And, th- and that part's been really very, very gratifying. Of course, there's been some pushback in certain quarters and some, some back and forth. But I can't tell you how many pension fund conferences, union conferences, you know, I've spoken at and, and there have been some really exciting things. You pointed out some of the, you know, reviews. That was a pretty exciting thing. I think getting what happened there with the New York Review Show. There are many good things that happen with it and I'm hopeful that it's going to uh it's already seems to be having some some policy impact and maybe some legislative impact. I've been working on, you know, possible legislative reforms in various states that would kind of accommodate a little bit more some of these fiduciary questions that we've been talking about. So that that's been that's been that's been fun. If I were to write another edition today, I guess a couple of things. One is I think I would lean in even more to the worker side, the S side of things. You know, the book was pretty, back when I was writing the book, one of the things that I was coming up against was a widespread view in the corporate world, in academia, that like shareholder power was very overrated and was very weak. I mean, I think that was sort of a, and, and so part of what I tried to do, especially with focusing on the G, on the governance, there's a lot about the G in the book, was to try to say, hey, look, here are all of these tangible examples of how these pension funds have really changed things. You know, you look at the proxy access fight, you look at majority voting for shareholders, declassifying corporate boards. Uh, There were, you know, splitting the CEO and chair. All these governance things, it really started or maybe didn't start, but there was a long wave of governance. So I devoted a lot to that, in part to try to show Yes, these funds can, be, because that's where they were winning. That's where they were winning. Now, a lot of it has moved into, you know, the E and the S space. And I think if I were to do another edition, I would, I would cover even more of that today.
1: I heard one, I, to me, surprising reaction from a high-level AFL-CIO official who mm-hmm. said, and, and I will try to quote his best I can, but it's from memory, so I'm sure it's not exact. He loves David Weber, but we're more than just a bank account. Organizing isn't dead yet, right? Did oh yes, you you get that reaction that 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 you know how could you ignore the other side of this? Uh, you know, I know that actually, wasn't the book you were writing, but that was how they took it. Sure.
0: Well, that's interesting because there have been other people,
1: <laughs>
0: maybe we we'll won't get into names inside of the AFL CIO who've almost taken the opposite position that like they shouldn't that they shouldn't be focusing on thinking about um, shareholder power for anything other than maximizing, you know, and by the way, I'm not saying that these funds don't maximize returns. They do, but, you know, enlightened ways of maximizing returns also often take into account workers and the environment and so on and so forth. But I don't think that I'm neglecting, uh, you know, the organizing side of things. I mean, I think in fact, part of the whole idea of saying, listen, you know, new contributors can matter. Me, that you know investing in ways where you create union jobs or investing in ways where you at least don't kill union jobs can also affect the bottom line, given the fact that workers themselves contribute to these pensions, but it is funny i mean i i i, I mean i i I see the point i mean my my mean argument is not like, oh, you know organizing is over far from it I mean organizing and a, a said this in public and written about this, you know, we've seen a clear rejuvenation of organizing. Everywhere you look now, unions are more popular than they have been since the 1960s. There's the Starbucks unionization drive. There's unionization drives, you know, in in, you know, at Amazon and elsewhere. So obviously I do agree I think that organizing for unions is still critically important. I just think that this this piece has been and, and neglected. And, you know, I think, you know, one of the things that I say in terms of, you know, having capital strategies, why pension funds should is, realistically speaking, unions put a lot of money into electoral campaigns. They put into legislative and litigation, sometimes campaigns. But I think you probably know better than anyone, John, that like the facts on the ground are often created in the corporate space, in markets. And oftentimes by the time you get to that legislation, It's markets and corporations that have created the facts on the ground. And so you have to have voice there too. You just have to have voice there too. Not that that means you shouldn't exercise voice in the places you already do, but you need to have voice in markets or corporations as well. I really think that that's true.
1: One reason I think the book resonates so deeply was because of this feeling that, you know, sort of corporations were in control and there was increasing income inequality and so sort of the economic mobility part of the great American dream, right, you can be born poor and become rich, and vice versa, was increasing out of reach, and that economic mobility was no longer in existence. you were more frozen into where you were. And I know you're not a labor economist or a lawyer, but number one, am I right in assuming that you believe more labor rights and more unionization would reduce inequality? And two, if so? What would you see if, 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 if you were you know, the Speaker of the House of Representatives? What would be your program to deal with those issues?
0: So, first of all, yes, I do believe. I mean, look, it is no secret that uh, labor law in the United States is very hostile compared to almost every other developed country, very hostile to so organizing, labor organizing, hostile to unions, makes it very difficult to form unions and so on and so forth. And, you know, there is a fair amount of evidence out there. You're right, I'm not a labor economist, but labor has lost bargaining power over the over several decades. Labor unions have shrunk dramatically. And I don't think most credible experts will tell you that's that's no coincidence. It's not necessarily the only explanation for what we observe but more and more uh, of the gains of our society are going to a very, very tiny sliver of the population. And part of that story, I really do believe, is the comparative weakening of unions, the comparative weakening of labor rights in this country, um, hostility to organizing, etc. And there are other flourishing economies around the world, Germany, Sweden, actually most of Europe, in fact, and and you know parts of Asia as well and elsewhere, where they have thriving market economies, but they also have much higher rates of immunization, much more worker voice, you know, at work. And so, I yes, I I I do believe that the weakening of labor rights and, and this and the hostility to labor rights and labor organization in this country has really created a profound problem of economic inequality. And I also think, John. That this reality of uh, is driving some of the most toxic elements of our politics today, serious threats to our democracy. And I think, in part, it's because there are just too many people in this country who don't see a, a, a workable economic future for themselves. Uh, what would have been somebody who could have worked on an assembly line fifty years ago in a unionized job with high wages and and benefits and so forth. Today, that person is working multiple jobs, either maybe they're a gig worker or they're in the service industry, they're not part of a union and they don't have benefits and it's rough out there for far too many people. And I think if we don't take seriously um, focusing on economic inequality and strengthening the voice of workers, I tr- really worry about where this takes our politics and the hostility to the way this country has operated successfully in many ways, at least on the legal political fronts for, for a long time. So, you know, there is that piece of it, And so, yes, I mean, I would, I would, if I could wave a magic wand, I would make it a lot easier for, uh, for workers to organize or, you know, not make it so easy for companies to fire workers who just, who decide they want to be, you know, part of a, of a labor union, create a fairer playing field in union elections and um, make a more robust, uh, you know, enforcement basically of these spaces because we have two problems. We have laws that aren't great. And then we have laws that are okay and just kind of are under enforced.
1: You um, said you would lean more into the E and S if you were redoing the book today. Mm -hmm. So let's stay with ESG for a second. You recently co-wrote an award-winning academic paper, quote, shareholder values, index for ESG activism, and the new millennial corporate governance, end quote. And to paraphrase an earlier academic paper, actually, I think it was your former BU compatriot, Carolyn Flabber's paper that said that just because someone's a passive stock picker doesn't mean they're a passive voter. So tell us about your paper and what you think are the implications.
0: Well, so, and I'm, I'm glad you raised it. And I should note that this is a paper I, I co-wrote with uh, Ms. Al and Pink Ferutis of the University of Virginia. And, you know, the basic argument that we were looking at was, why is it that around 2016, 2017 in particular, after years of the big three and the large index funds, basically paying very little attention overtly to ESG. You know, for a while, a lot of these kind of there were these like kind of marginal, socially responsible investor funds, and they would make proposals and they'd get a certain percentage of the vote, et cetera. And then pretty rapidly, these ESG issues moved to the center of of markets. And suddenly now the big three, the kind of, you know, of the establishment of the establishment started embracing. And part of our theory as to why that happened and one of the issues that they picked, particularly the environment and and gender diversity and corporate boards, was that it was really about a cultural change and about trying to manage the battle to manage millennial and now increasingly you know future Gen Z well, okay. And and part of what I think is relevant to our discussion is there's a lot of evidence that millennials and now Gen Z as well have very different attitudes about politics, about investing, about the workplace then Gen X and baby boomers did and do. And, you know, one of, the, what I, one of the most interesting, what I think is important kind of, you know, cultural changes going on is that, you know, the silos are really breaking down. I think people used to think I do my politics at the ballot booth the where I invest is kind of, you know, that's just in the 401k somewhere else. And I shop where I shop and whatever. And politics is, you know, every two years, every four years, et cetera. I'm, I'm exaggerating a little bit, but only a little. Bit. And now what we see increasingly, particularly again, among millennials and Gen Z is like this idea of leaving your politics at the door is anathema. If you're serious about your political commitments, it's not just something you do in the voting booth. It's something you need to do with your investment portfolio. It's something you need to do with your sh- how you shop. It's something that you need to do in your workplace, exercise that voice. And I think, by the way, social media has played an enormous role in this. Cancel culture has played a, a role in this. And so we point to a lot of examples of how, uh, at least in that particular paper, that part of what we thought was going on is that the big three, look, they all basically invest in the same thing. They can't outperform each other on returns. They have whittled down costs to a number close to zero. What do they really fight over? They compete over assets under management. And we think, at least part of the theory and some of the evidence, was a way to get those assets under management from millennials as they enter the workforce and enter, you know, become and, you know, get their 401ks, et cetera, is by focusing on environmental issues and, and gender diversity in particular. It's now migrated to other
1: areas. What's next? What's exciting to you right now? What are you passionate about?
0: In this world, I mean, I I, I am very interested to see where things are going to go with, in particular, with blue states trying to grapple with the anti-ESG, you know, backlash. You know, I think that there are many states that, um, particularly blue states, not necessarily just blue states, that actually really are interested in, actively doing more for workers, for the environment in terms of how their state pension funds invest, in terms of what their state pension codes say. And so I think that's going to be very interesting to see, you know, is there going to be new legislation coming out or new announcements from attorneys general? I'm quite certain there's going to be, you know, new, uh, you know, pension policies dealing with like, you know, private equity in particular is a, A major force. And I think that, you know, more needs to be done to cast some sunlight on the private equity industry. And for some of these pension funds that have been for a very long time turning over their assets for management to um, private equity funds, and then having those private equity funds do really bad things with that money, um, including really bad things to workers. Many pension funds are now developing policies to try to reset the table and reset the terms with private equity. I don't think it's a coincidence, for example, that KKR has recently come out with, you know, increasingly trying to be visible about worker ownership at the companies that they invest in. One can be skeptical. I am a bit skeptical about how they are doing it, but the mere fact that they are doing it, which I do think is in part driven by decades of reputation of, you know, those funds being really bad for, for workers and their practices, but also recognizing that they have a lot of worker pension dollars under management, I think that they're trying to get ahead of exactly that issue. And I think we're gonna see more of that, more focus on worker ownership, more focus on pension funds, having worker-friendly investment policies. So that that I think is gonna be very interesting to watch in the coming years. And I will point out there's a lot, most of the assets in the public pension sector are actually in the blue states, in part because they have bigger public sector unions, larger public, public sectors in general. And so there's a, there is a lot of, um, dollar firepower in those states.
1: Let's finish with some short Q and a, how do you relax? I
0: read a lot. I watch the Boston Celtics of the Boston Bruins, especially in recent weeks. Um, and I, you know, hang out with my kids and my dog, not necessarily in that order but I I do read a lot. I read a lot of fiction. I read poetry. I've been reading more philosophy lately and not just uh, law review articles. I'm more broadly interested in, in other topics. So, yeah, that's mostly what I do.
1: What music do you listen to?
0: I listen to a pretty broad range of music. Certainly, you know, I listen to classical and I listen to club music and I listen to classical choral. And I also listen to lately one of it's been a real joy that my kids, particularly my my younger son, have gotten into Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins. You know, those were the groups that I uh, kind of came of age with in the in the you know in the nineties. And it's uh, it's a joy to pass on the to that particular the grunge rock of Seattle tradition uh, to to my kids. So uh, that's that's what I listen to a lot. Yeah.
1: If you could be on vacation right now where would it be oh boy that
0: that's a good question <laughs> i like beaches i like beaches a warm beach with a book and uh you know i don't know the sea you know i'm i'm a sucker for maine we try to go up there almost every summer i love the portland maine area i love the food scene uh particularly in summer i love you know the food and the music and the beaches and uh so yeah i, I you know i don't know if if covid has made me uh a closer to home kind of guy, but, uh, but I, I love that place.
1: Last question. If you could magically tell everyone in the world one thing, what would you tell them?
0: I will tell you one thing that I heard. It's not from me. It was, uh, a professor uh, said this to a friend of mine and she passed it on to me. And what she said is, you know, the goal in life is to look forward to going to work in the morning. And to look forward to coming home at night. And I thought that was a pretty good one uh, to pass on to students to anyone like that's you know try to orient yourself that's that's the basic goal. Attaining it, of course, is harder, but I think that's a that's a nice statement of of you know what what we sh- should be trying to pursue in life.
1: Thank you. You've been listening to Outside In with our special guest David Webber. David, as you've heard, knows his topic areas incredibly well and applies um, unique thinking to them so it's not just the conventional wisdom which always makes it really fun to speak with them thanks so much David. thank you john i really appreciate it you've been listening to spark networks outside in with john lukumnik the interdisciplinary podcast for financial professionals outside in is produced by connor Ohingasa, john lukumnik executive producer it is available from apple spotify google and wherever you get your podcasts please remember to subscribe leave us a review follow us on social media thanks much for listening